Two weeks ago, we were in the book of Matthew, and Morgan led us through the whole thing about Jesus and the Sabbath, and also about the disciples picking grains. That was good. Thank you, Morgan, for taking that. Last week, as you know, we kind of took a little informal time where we just kind of prayed for the election, prayed for the outcomes in our nation and stuff. That was kind of our focus last week. We're back in the book of Matthew. You know, some of you, when we talk about, we've been in the book of Matthew, we spent, what, 13 weeks on the first four chapters way back last spring, I think. We did some other series. We came back. We've spent probably, this is our maybe eighth week again, uh, as we've gone through two or three chapters. So some of you are like, come on, I can read the Bible on my own at home. (laughs) What do I need this for, right? So let me just throw some things on the screen for you. I want you to just review on your own. Just think about these things. There's some questions that we've kind of covered in here. And the reason I'm pointing these out is sometimes we think, oh, yeah, 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 I heard it. I heard everything. I I know. I know what's going on. And then we realize that as soon as we leave this room, so much of the information we've gained goes away. Here's some things I just want you to, just some questions. You can just answer them in your head. Why did Jesus tell the leper, see that you don't tell anyone that you're healed? What was Jesus' point when he said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head? Why did Jesus tell the disciple to let the dead bury their own dead? Why does Jesus quote Micah when he says twice, I desire mercy, not sacrifice? How does it apply to us? When the bleeding woman was healed by touching Jesus and he said that your faith has healed you, did Jesus mean that anyone with the same faith would be healed? Why did Jesus instruct the disciples not to go out among the Gentiles? What does Jesus mean when he tells us that we need to be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves? How should we understand Jesus' words? I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. What is Jesus referring to when he says, there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed? When Jesus said, whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Does this mean that Simon Peter is in trouble for his later actions? Why does Jesus say, I have not come to bring peace to the earth, but a sword? How should we understand Jesus' words, when he says that anyone who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. What does Jesus mean when he says, no one knows the son except the father, and no one knows the father except the son, and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him? Why does Jesus have so many tough things to say before asking people to come to him saying, my yoke is easy and my burden is light? Why did Jesus heal on the Sabbath? Why did he allow his disciples to pick the heads of grain? My reason in putting these questions up there is, is, like I said, it's very easy for us to just process information. Even on a night when we're in here, we tend to go pretty deep and debate through some of the topics, but sometimes I feel like when we leave here, the information just kind of drains out. So here's my pitch. If any of these questions are ones that you think you should know the answers to or already do, maybe some of them you've forgotten, My encouragement is maybe we need to go back and keep refreshing our mind as to some of these things because it would be a shame to do a series where we're trying to encounter the actual words of Jesus, not what we've heard about him, but what he really was saying, and then continually forgetting what we hear each time or some of those things go out of our mind. That's just kind of meant to be a gut check for us to see, are we retaining the information or are we just going through it? So let's push ahead. That's just kind of a way by review. Let's go into continuing in Matthew 12. We're starting in verse 15 tonight, but I want to back up to verse 14 that Morgan ended with last time, only because it sets kind of the context for when when it starts off in 15 saying, aware of this, like aware of what? In verse 14, 
But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. So remember, at the end, where Morgan left us in the story, they were not happy with his rebuttal to their rebukes or their attempted rebukes. They were not happy with the way he was dialoguing with them. What they really were not happy about, probably, was that they wanted to find a way to get rid of this guy who was starting to attract many crowds. They also thought that maybe they didn't like his responses about the Sabbath that we went through, but the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. And now we start in verse 15. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him, and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell anyone who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Again, you have that thing in here where Jesus says, don't tell anybody who I am. So let's review real fast. Why does he keep saying that? Isn't the whole idea is to tell everybody about Jesus? I mean, it's, let's state it the way we've stated it. If the point is that you have to know who Jesus is to find salvation, why is he keeping it a secret? What was our answer? Does anybody remember why he's telling these people to keep quiet about it? Yeah. It's a timing thing with his death. I mean, even verse 14, obviously, is showing that the Pharisees are beginning to oppose him. So one, one possibility is that uh, if he gets too famous too fast, they'll, they'll put him down quicker. And so maybe, <laughs> maybe in the long run, less people would hear, right? I mean, if you're killed prematurely. So I think it centers around his death and his own timing. It, it's kind of the showing that sovereign idea to say he, he understands his timing to say, let's keep quiet for a little bit and I'll reveal myself. Okay, he's doing that. And how would keeping quiet, by the way, keep him from being killed? I mean, isn't the point for him to ultimately be killed? I mean, he wants these people to kill him. So, so maybe he's trying to control the timing. But how's, how's keeping quiet control the timing? You see that the people are getting more and more agitated by what he's doing? That seems to be what's going on. The Pharisees are, as you point out in verse 14, the Pharisees are coming after him. So he's thinking, okay, let's, let's calm it down a little bit. The time isn't right yet for this to happen. There still needs to be a little bit more before we get to that point. So that's what Matthew seems to be pointing out, that Jesus is somewhat in control of the situation and knows he's throttling back a little bit to say, not yet. I'm still going to do my ministry. I'm still going to teach, but I'm not ready to push that hard yet. Now, normally when we come to a prophecy like this, this is where we just skim, right? Like, because this was meant to be the part where it was prophesied, and we see this block verse from the Old Testament go, blah, blah, blah. Okay, and I have to read that part, right? You just like slide to the end of the quote, and then move on, right? Because clearly, it's like some prophecy or something, right? Read this prophecy. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. You know, again, this is one of those, this is what's to fulfill the prophecy where Isaiah said, and here's the quote, here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. What does that sound like? Does that resonate? Does that sound like something that we've heard before? This is my servant whom I love. Where does it come from? Yeah. Yeah, it's actually very similar to the whole part when John the Baptist hears the voice of God saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Matthew here, by the way, is kind of writing his own translation of Isaiah and he chooses these words, so they're not exactly found exactly this way. He writes his own translation of the Hebrew, but it's very reminiscent of that same part in, in where John the Baptist is baptizing. Matthew 3.17, this is my son. So here it is. Here's my servant whom I've chosen. 
the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. So there, you've actually read one of those quotations now together, so you, now you can see it. But it's clearly a reference back to Isaiah, as he says, and he's trying to set Jesus up again as the fulfillment of this messianic hope. But notice this line, he will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. Because we're going to see this fight coming over and over between him and the Pharisees. And it's trying to remind us that there's a reason that he didn't just take them on. It was prophesied that he wouldn't. And this is a new kind of messianic hope that we have. All right, let's get into the real part of the text that's going to kind of move us forward. Then they brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. So you're seeing this battle going on here between Jesus and the Pharisees constantly. They've already said this to him once before in the book of Matthew. Remember this part, going back to chapter 10? A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Jesus was warning his disciples before he sent them out. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? Remember, he was telling the disciples, this is going to happen to you. It's going to happen to me, so it's going to happen to you. We see again that it's happening. Now, is this prophetic? No, it's already going on. Jesus was already being called these kinds of names. Like, basically, the only reason you're able to do these things is because Satan is in you. That's the reason that you're able to do these things, especially driving out Satan. So here we have the Pharisees. They don't like the outcome. The crowds are the people who are sitting on the fence right now wondering, who is this guy? He keeps doing some pretty amazing things. In fact, this utterance right here where they say, could this be the son of David? That seems a little bit hopeful in the NIV, which I've used here because you guys mostly have that one. They're still doubting. Actually, the way it's written in Greek is better and translated as like, this couldn't be the son of David, could it? They're actually doubting that it might be him, but they're leaving the possibility open because it's getting, well, there's a lot of evidence coming out. And he seems to be doing some mighty, powerful things over and over. But he's clearly ticking off the Pharisees. So they're thinking this, and Jesus knew their thoughts. Or maybe he didn't even have to read their minds. Maybe it was pretty evident from what they were saying, what they were thinking. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do you people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. You know, it seems like in the last few passages that we've been reading, Jesus has turned into the Riddler, right? Like he's always like coming out with like, riddle me this, right? He doesn't ever seem to be just 
stating it. So we have to kind of pause again and go, all right, all right, let me, let me get my thinking cap on here, okay? We understand every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined because people have borrowed that quote throughout history. But he's talking really about how could I be under the power of Satan and be casting people, casting Satan out of people? Why would I be doing that? That doesn't make sense, is what he's saying in English. It doesn't make sense that Satan would be casting out demons from other people. Does it make sense? He's really putting it back to them. So you're saying I'm Satan or Satan is inside of me. Why would I cast out demons then? Wouldn't that be part of the plan? He even puts it back on them. By whom do your people drive them out? Because we know at the time, the Pharisees also were trying to drive out demons sometimes. Not maybe themselves personally, but they had their people doing it. So whose influence are they under? If you're pointing to me. So Jesus is kind of having a little battle of wit here. A battle of words. So they will be your judges. Whoever those people are, let's let them decide this thing. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's not a small word there. It means basically that if the Spirit of God is the one that's at work here, then the kingdom is here. When it says come upon you, it's like it's surprised you. It's surrounded you. You didn't even realize it. It's in your midst already. And while you're standing there accusing me of being Satan, while you're playing with these games to try to discredit what my ministry is, guess what? The kingdom of God is here. And it doesn't make sense that it would be Satan casting out Satan. So that must mean the other option is the better one. While you're standing there castigating me, the kingdom of God has surprised you. It's upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. Who's the strong man here? Anyone catch his, his next riddle? Yeah. Imagine it's got to be Satan, the person who's bound by him. Yeah, he's making a direct allusion to storming Satan's house, tying him up, and taking his possessions. His possessions probably represent those people, those good things that God wants back. So he's making a reference. And people in the first century hearing this, especially the Jews, they understood the idea of tying up of Satan. That was already in their messianic language. That was already in their eschatological or their future-looking language. It's again used at the end of Revelation. We have the same thing of Satan being bound up. So they already are comfortable with this language. They know what he's talking about when he throws in this little mini parable about the strong man being tied up. What's Jesus' ultimate point? He's saying, look, your claim doesn't make sense. That means that the other claim makes a lot of sense. While you're accusing me, the kingdom of God has surrounded you. And it's here. Let's get you guys involved. Now Jesus says this. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age 
or in the age to come. Here it is, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. A source of many discussions that I've heard even in this group. So we encounter it once and for all right here. So what does blasphemy against the Holy Spirit mean? What does it encompass? Because apparently, whatever it means, it's not forgivable now or in the age to come. So it's a pretty serious deal that you could have something that's not forgivable. I'll throw out some examples. Well, you tell me what you think it means. I can tell you historically some of the things that the church has thought it meant. Yeah, Wes. Like uh, of the commandments, uh, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Okay, so if you take the Lord's name in vain, not forgivable. That's what you're advancing? Okay, Peter? Uh, the, the way I understand it, or maybe this way it explains to me, is that you know, if someone's so far gone that they think a movement of the Spirit, like things that are good, and they say that's Satan's work, which is exactly what's happening in the preceding uh, narrative, that that person is so far gone to think that the good things of God are actually Satan's work, that of course they're going to be damned from, from here on out. Because if you're that far gone, you're gone. Okay, do you think they're damned at that moment? Like they're so far gone that at the moment they say, that must no. be from Satan that there's like... Phew. No, I, I, don't think it's a, I don't think it's a moment in time as much as it's a condition. Okay, anyone else? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? I mean, ever, people bring it up all the time. I've heard people say it means uh, when you fall away from the Lord. Unforgivable, right? Once you know the truth, fall away, unforgivable. You know, I've heard people say uh, suicide is the unforgivable sin. Anybody ever heard that? Suicide, unforgivable sin, right? Yeah. What's the context here? What's the meaning? Yeah. Well, I've heard it explained as just like not being a Christian, like just rejecting Christ. Okay. Let me address that, because now we can look at the text, right? Because this is something that we got to think about when he says, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So when you talk about somebody who rejects Christ, does that mean speak against him or actually reject him? Well, I've heard it like reject, like he is not the Messiah, he is not like just rejecting. Okay. Well, what my question is, is like, if the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three in one, then like, how can you just blaspheme the Holy Spirit and not the other two? Let me, let me, let me, throw, the, <laughs> let me throw the question back at you. Jesus apparently makes the distinction, right? And so you're right to bring it up. Does that mean that Jesus is somehow less? Like it's okay to blaspheme him, but not the Holy Spirit? Is he somehow less than the Holy Spirit? I think there's, there's something to do with, like, we can blaspheme against the Son of Man because he already was a sacrifice for our sins. So I feel like even if we blaspheme against him, then we're still forgiven for that because of the sacrifice. So I've always struggled with this passage, so I'm interested to hear what you guys have to say. Yeah, we're going to try to solve it tonight. I mean, Remember when we started reading the book of Matthew, one of the reasons we said it is because we said the context matters. The story matters. Jeremy. Before this, he's making the claim that he casts out demons because he has the Spirit of God. He has authority is given to him to do things because of the Spirit, God's Spirit. So, in essence, it seems that by denying that, that act of the Spirit, you're rebelling against the very idea that God can even act in the world or that, that the Spirit... Uh, it, it would be almost like saying to Jesus, your spirit is unclean. 
you like it says in Mark, it says it, it has this different idea in Mark. At Mark adds at the very end, if you say if you blaspheme against the spirit, it's you are saying that the spirit is unclean. But I don't know why it's okay to say something blasphemous against the son, and I don't know that I would do that either. But <laughs> I mean, because you would think that the the son has as much authority, right, as the spirit. But clearly, the spirit has some authority, at least it seems has authority from God, because Jesus is saying he has authority because of the spirit which comes from God. Sure, and Jesus also repeats numerous times in Matthew, I think at least twice, all authority has been given to me. We saw that a couple weeks ago, and we're going to see it in Matthew 28. Right? I don't think that he would just talk about the devil casting out his own people, and he's like, hey, you know what? If you're my people, and you cast out my spirit, then you can't be forgiven of that. So if you perform an exorcism and accidentally opt out the Holy yeah. Spirit, right. and he goes, it was me, dummy, right. then you go, ooh, like, like you're, you're finished. I don't know, I'm just, I'm just Yeah, Ben. Jesus is claiming that his powers are derived from the Spirit, and you claim that the Spirit is not the Spirit for one reason or another. Maybe it's, that is itself claiming that God is not God, or God is not powerful the big thing. Like, you can say what you want against the son. Like, he's human there. Like, yeah, you can see me in a person. Maybe I might not look that godlike to you. But if you claim that the spirit doesn't is not what the spirit says it is, then you're claiming that the God you supposedly follow is not the God you supposedly follow. Okay. I was just going to ask. I mean, he's talking about the, the Holy Spirit. But obviously, he hasn't sent the Holy Spirit yet. Um, is he referring to, like, the actual person in the Holy Spirit? Or is he talking about the spirit of God? I think he's referring to the personage of the Holy Spirit. And it's true that he has not sent the Spirit, but we already know the Spirit has been active all the time. In fact, probably going back to the creation of the world with the Spirit hovering over the earth. I mean, we know that the Spirit has been active even though we don't see the Spirit identified so much and certainly hasn't come at the moment of Pentecost. There were times in the early church where what they thought it meant was that because the Holy Spirit has not yet come, that at this point you could somehow blaspheme Jesus because he wasn't quite yet the resurrected Lord. But that really doesn't seem to mesh. Because all the time, especially when he uses the word son of man, he's not talking about Jesus just the person, the historical figure, now before I'm glorified. We already know that Jesus already possesses full divinity even now. The crucifixion and the resurrection doesn't add anything to him. He's already who he is. So there was that feeling for a while, but later on people thought, no, that doesn't make sense. Especially since the words Son of Man most of the time refers to Jesus who is going to be victorious as the Messiah anyway. So it doesn't make sense to say that somehow Jesus is less than the Holy Spirit. Later on it was like, well, once you receive the Holy Spirit, now any blasphemy of any kind against either Jesus or the Holy Spirit will be blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and that's where that belief arose that, well, maybe once you become a Christian, you can't fall away. But in context, what's happening here is the Pharisees are saying, you cast out demons because you are Satan. How is Jesus casting out demons? He's casting out demons with the power of the Holy Spirit, his triune nature at work somehow, in a way we can scarcely comprehend so it's clearly a work of the Spirit that is going on here in healing this person and casting out demons. And they're saying, that's Satan. And he's saying, be careful. 
you are blaspheming against the Spirit. That is not forgivable. Now the why it's not forgivable may be some of the reasons that you threw out. Maybe it's because a person gets to a certain point that they are so far gone in their recognition of who Jesus is that they'll never recognize Jesus. And the early church struggled with this as well. They actually would say to somebody, be careful when you reject Jesus, that might be an unforgivable sin. Because what they were really saying was, if you continue down that rejected path, it will lead to something you can't be forgiven for because you'll stand at the throne room of judgment and you'll receive judgment without Jesus. And that's what they said. And they were trying to be careful not to become arrogant and saying, look, we're pronouncing judgment on you. They were saying, be careful where you're going. But of course, over time, that got abused. And over time, people were pronouncing other people were unforgiven because of their rejection of Christ. They would tell them about Jesus. They would try to talk to them. And when they rejected Christ, they go, oh, that's unforgivable. Kind of twisting what's going on here. Let's keep it in context. This is a very dangerous passage to take out of context. The context is Jesus has done something by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Pharisees have said, that's satanic. They have called the Holy Spirit's work satanic. And he's saying, that is unforgivable. Yeah. It's still done today. And I'm, I mean, I'm not trying to be like, oh, I feel sorry for them or whatever. But put yourself in that culture, in that context. Like, there's something you believe. You're trying to be a really good Jew, whatever. Then this guy comes around and he looks like a human being. He's like, oh, God, and I'm doing this. And he's doing miracles and it's threatening what you believe. So you're like, well, that must be demonic. But... People still do that now. Like they're like, I took a, a class in Bodu in Santeria, and they showed this offering they threw into the ocean that actually got sucked up, like into the ocean, like taken. And then people were like, oh well, that must be demonic. Look what happened. Like they saw something that looked like a miracle, but clearly that's not Jesus. So, like, so people pronounce like spiritual things as demonic all the time. But the difference is, we know that demonic activity takes place, and we know that spiritual activity takes place plug into like seven CDs or whatever we did on spiritual warfare. Go check those out on the website, okay? We know that goes on. So if somebody says that's demonic, and it is, we don't have a problem. We also know that the Bible's pretty clear that what was referred to back then as pagan religions and pagan offerings were actually offerings to demons. So in the scriptures, we have clues that, that anything that we offer to other religions is being really offered to other demons because they're the ones that are really behind all the other things in the world, right? So what I'm saying is, most of the time, it's like that stuff happens and you're not blaspheming anybody when you call something rightly out and say, that is demonic. Or that is something that the spiritual forces of this world would love to see happen, whether they're really worshiping Satan or worshiping something else. The place where you have to be the most careful, and I do agree with you, it still happens today, but the place where I see it happening the most, by the way, is within our own churches. I'll give you a quick example where we have to be very careful. There are Christians who call other Christians influenced by Satan all the time. For example, if you happen to be, and again, we did a lot of weeks on this about spiritual giftings, but if you happen to be part of that camp that believes that the gifts of tongues and those things have ceased, I have heard over and over people who are from the cessationist camp saying that charismatics who practice the gift of tongues are really babbling satanic babble. I get very uncomfortable with that because you better hope you're right. Because otherwise, <laughs> the closest thing to this context I mean, whatever blaspheming of the Holy Spirit might mean, I know what it means in this story. And in this story, that would come closer than anything else I've heard. Another one that I've heard is when Christians, and I've heard them, they'll say that other pastors are influenced by Satan. 
And, and they'll come in a context like this, like those seeker-sensitive lovers, those people who want to tickle your ears, those, you know, like that thing. And they're saying that those people have gone astray and are preaching the gospel of Satan to a world and they don't even know it. And what they're really trying to say is we're the true church and they're diluted and they don't know what they're doing. You know, there's a lot of churches that may have gone in errant ways, but to actually say that they are preaching Satan's gospel or that they are somehow, that to me, you're on the thinnest possible ice. Or are you so convinced that you're right and everybody else is wrong that you would actually attribute Satan to the work? Morgan. See, I mean, it's an interesting thing also because, I mean, obviously this has a word speaking in it. But, you know, what, what about the situation where you think that and you don't say it? Or what if, what if that's your gut reaction? I mean, do we picture God condemning us? Well, maybe. But, I, I, I mean, personally, I don't. You know, personally, my thought is, would God do that? And maybe the answer is yes. I mean, maybe, I, maybe it's just a very difficult thing to understand. But it brings up that idea of, like, you know, what's the difference between a thought and a word? I mean, I don't know, but it's... He's going to answer your question in the next few verses. And nothing that we've said so far, just to be clear, implies, and I don't think it's in here, that it's a on-off switch, that like once you trip it, it's over. It doesn't expressly say that, but there's nothing in there that says like once you do it, that's the end of it. And the, the proof in that will come in a moment when we move on to the next few verses. Philip. Would that also apply a bad thing for like bad craps happening? And like someone says, I mean like Satan sending bad stuff my way, like that happens all the time. All the time. And like it seems like it's the exact same thing. You know what? Here's the difference. Jesus is making it clear that you could somehow speak against him. And the place where a lot of people seem to rest in the commentaries about this is that if you know that's something that has just been performed in front of you. Let's keep the context in mind. And if I have just, with my words and my wit, shown you that it can't be Satan, but you're still insisting that it is, you're in a place of absolute knowledge. And that seems to be a key in this distinction. That's why I think Jesus doesn't say to Peter, that's unforgivable, you've denied me. Because Jesus allows for that process that we have as humans to doubt, to struggle, to wrestle, to wonder, to get it wrong. All of that falls within what I think he says, you can do that against me. But these people, I think we cannot divorce this from the context of the story. These people saw what had just happened, knowing where it came from, and I believe they did know, and then said, you know what? We can't deny the miracle, so we're going to deny the sword. I think we have to narrowly limit this rule to that kind of a context. And in most cases... People don't know. I mean, that's assuming like, that they have absolute knowledge, which I don't think you have any justification for assuming that. Like, yeah, Jesus explained his reasoning to them, but I mean, you're assuming that the Pharisees are completely hell-bent on like, destroying Jesus, knowing that what they preach is false, and that Jesus is preaching right, and like, that doesn't seem to fit with the rest of the Pharisees. Okay, put it, hold on for a second, because Jesus does know. He's going to tell us in a moment how he knows. Yeah. Um, what I always wonder about is the more modern mindset, which says there's really no such thing as a Satan. There's no such thing as these types of demonic things. And people who are, you know, we used to think, right, that people who are schizophrenic or multiple personality disorder were demonic. Or I mean, you could read studies of psychiatrists and who thought these things, and now we treat them with medicine. So I've often wondered the exact opposite, like the modern mindset, which approaches things like this and says, they just weren't even right. I mean, they just need meds, you know. 
that denies those kinds of things at all. And, and like it's the, it's the exact opposite problem, just kind of interesting. Yeah, I think it is interesting, but if we keep it narrowly, like I think this, this verse has been taken to mean so many things that I think if we firmly connect it to its context, it seems that the best we've got so far is if you attribute to Satan something that you know to be of the Holy Spirit, you've blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. Now, Philip, I think, is still troubled by the fact that, like, well, do they know? Matthew's arrangement of the text, so he's connecting Jesus' thoughts here. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. So he's basically saying, this is how I know you Pharisees are bad, because of your fruit. Now, what's the fruit? You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored in him. But I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words, you'll be acquitted, and by your words, you'll be condemned. Yeah, riddle me that. Once again, what does this mean? Connect it, by the way, to what you just heard. It's, a con it's part of the continuing narrative that's going on. What does this mean? This part about good tree, good fruit, bad tree, bad fruit. And what do the words of your mouth have to do with your heart? What's he saying? Anyone? Yeah. Depending on where your heart is, that's the words that are going to be coming out of your mouth. Like if my heart is hardened and I'm upset or angry, probably what I'm going to say isn't going to be the nicest thing. But if you're pure at heart and, you know, if you're full of God's love, your words should be pure and they should be joyous and encouraging. So like the Pharisees, they don't have anything positive to say. It's all negative and their hearts are dark. Not just negative. They're actually beyond negative, right? I mean, they're coming out and saying, you are evil and are basically possessed by the evil one if you aren't the evil one himself. He's saying that by those words, you're telling us the condition of who you are. You're evil inside because your words are tainted by who you are inside. Look, I mean, look at these words. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What you have in your heart in abundance is what you will say. You know, but I, I don't think, I still don't think it's, it's uh, how do you say, uh, if someone were to come today and walk around proclaiming to be Jesus or the incarnate Christ, then we would rightly say, you're a loon, you're crazy. You don't, and, and it's not like this is the first time this has happened. And, and not only is it not the first time it's happened, but clearly there's this idea where there are demonic forces. They have they have people, right, who exercise demons themselves. So, you know, it's not far fetched to assume that there were people who perhaps performed some type of miracle or perhaps cast out some type of demon. As I mean, on the one hand, we're looking back at this and we're saying, yes, Jesus is clearly right. The Pharisees are wrong. Yada yada yada. The overflow. All they're, they're bad, 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 bad fruit. But for them. I mean, I really think that some of these guys had to be sincere in the fact that they really thought this guy's crazy. Like, this guy's threatening the establishment. But... Even no. Before you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, <laughs> hold on. 
You're using the word over and over, which is crazy. And there's a distinction here. It's very key. You see, Jesus has finished saying just a few verses earlier, if you're not for us, you're against us. Like, he who doesn't come to me is against me. That's what he's really saying. He's not condemning those people. He's just saying, you've got to choose, especially the people who are standing there watching this. That's really who's at play here. Not him or the Pharisees. Really what's at play here is all those people who are watching, who are wondering, is he? He couldn't be, could he? Those are the people he's saying, you've got to be for me or against me. He's not condemning those people. But the people he is condemning, and I don't even think he would be condemning the Pharisees if they said, you're crazy. He is condemning them when they said, you're Satan. It, it seems reasonable to me that they would say what they said. And, and they're not thinking that way. Okay, I agree with you that we make the Pharisees into cartoon characters. They're like the little flannel board guys that we put up and go, evil people, don't like Jesus, right? <laughs> we do that. But remember, Jesus' whole little battle with him about their, how could I be Satan? Why would I be casting out my, myself? What do you guys use? What authority do you use to cast out demons? He wouldn't be having that debate with them if he wasn't trying to show them that it's unreasonable. And you know it. You know that this is a real healing that I really have cast out a demon, and you know and I know that this isn't from Satan. It doesn't make sense. So what you're really concerned about is not what authority I used. You're concerned with discrediting the power that did it. I really think that's what's going on here. So yes, I agree we've made them into cartoon characters, and it's natural for them to feel like, this is getting a little creepy and weird. This guy is doing stuff we don't understand. I think he would forgive that. He wouldn't even he would say, "Hey, that's that's I've come to cause some of that stirring." But I think he's reasoning with them to show them, "You know what's going on." And you're seeking to discredit the very Holy Spirit. That's why it's blasphemy. That knowledge and you make the pronouncement, that is the the essence of blasphemy. And the reason I'm making that distinction is cuz I run into people all the time who wonder, "Have I committed the unforgivable sin?" Rarely, I believe, rarely is this ever even a factor. Except that you don't have any record of the Pharisees responding by saying, oh, you're right, sorry. That's the whole thing of verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Like, that's, where I think, that's why I think John's interpretation here is right on, is because at least in Matthew's framework, he's saying, guess what? This is a battle now. They've seen numerous things throughout his ministry, and they're out to get him, and they don't care. They, have, they are specifically out to get him. They could be defending the temple, and I totally agree that that would be, I understand because I mean, this is the system that, that Judaism is completely out of, and Jesus is shifting this, and it is monumental. So I mean, I understand their response as well. But there's no doubt that Matthew is painting this as, this does involve that kind of cosmic battle where, where they, are, they are out to get Jesus, and they don't want any part of it. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And I would even add that they could kill him and still be forgiven, but not attribute what he has done in that one instance to Satan. Because he's making a very specific claim. Just being out to kill Jesus is not enough to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. Although, again, if the words of their mouth reveals the evil of their heart, then wanting to kill him also reveals the evil in their heart. That's what he's saying. I'm not saying it. He's saying, that's the way I know. Brittany. Uh, well, then the verses are after that, like 38 to 39. It says, uh, then some of the scribes and Pharisees said, then teacher, we want to see a sign from you. So I don't know if that's supposed to be them, like, 
oh, thought about what he said, well, why don't we see the sign from you and see, or if it's just completely disregarding that he just did a sign for them, or... We're going to talk about that next week, obviously, and it is a continuation. We're not going there tonight, but what the point is, it is kind of a challenge. Like, okay, then we want to see a sign. All right, it's part of the continuing debate that they're having. And that's, so I'll give you that answer and leave it there for next week. If the Pharisees truly believed, even like some of them, that Jesus was doing things from Satan, then like they want to kill him. But I mean, I don't see... But just because they want to kill him doesn't mean that they knew he was doing things from God and wanted to kill him because they, for whatever reason, like their decision to kill him has nothing to do with their knowledge of whether he's from God or not. No, and I disagree with that. How, if, if they thought he was from God, why would they want to kill him? But my point is that they, you were using the verse saying, well, they want to kill him, therefore they know he's from God and don't care. Like that doesn't make any sense. Like. I don't think that it's just that part. That is the indication of their heart, but that's not what it is. It really is the understanding. I really believe that it's clear from these passages that they understood what was happening. Jesus has just explained to them how it's happened, and they're still insisting that he's Satan. And they, by the way, they will do it again and again. Like It's not just like a one-time deal. Like They have been spreading rumors, and we see it throughout the book of Matthew, and Jesus alludes to it. That's why I went back to that verse in chapter 10. He alludes to the fact that they will call you Satan the way they call me Satan. He's aware of what's happening. He's aware of the rumors that are being spread. <laughs> this is not like an isolated incident. Okay, last comment. Why isn't it expressly said this is what it is? Like, you would think that'd be something God would want us to know. Well, I think it is expressly stated. Like, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I think the people who wrote this probably got it, understood what that meant. Let me just ask this. Has anybody ever wondered if they've committed the unforgivable sin? Anybody ever wondered that? Everybody? A lot of people, I think, we make a big deal out of it, you know? I, I don't think that accidentally blaspheming happens by the context and by his statement. That's why we're reading the book of Matthew, so that you can read it for yourself. The context we get from this story is that if you blaspheme the Spirit, meaning attribute to Satan, something that is of the Holy Spirit, and I believe you have to do it knowingly because blasphemy was a knowing thing. It wasn't accidental. Okay? And even in the book of Numbers, we could see that there was a distinction made between blasphemy of certain things and just a curse or something like that. I mean, you had to know what you were doing and what you were saying. All right? In other words, Blasphemy is an intentional crime. It was punishable by death. People didn't accidentally blaspheme. They knew what they were doing or saying. And that's why I believe that in this context, from the word itself that was used, from the way that the story unfolds, that's what it means. You guys can't let it go. Go ahead. <laughs> they believe it was of Satan and called like it for what they thought it was, and it's not blasphemy? It's not answered in the text. <laughs> it's not answered in the text. I will give you a straight answer as to what this contextually says. Right, right, but I don't think you have to worry about it. You know, I, because I don't think that you're walking around looking for Satan's works and Christian's behavior. Or like, you know, that I don't, and that's where the Holy Spirit's residing, by the way. That's why I keep focusing on the church. Because the Holy Spirit is in us in the church. Right? That's where you'd have to be trolling around looking and go, Satan, 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 Satan. Like, that's where you'd have to be going. All right? Yeah.
you know, there's, there's a difference here between context and how we apply it spiritually and how we talk about it theologically. And I think that's the struggle we're having because they say something, Jesus responds. And now we don't really know how they respond afterwards. It's not, I mean, nine times out of ten, the Pharisees are right. It is a heretic. Only one time did they get it wrong. Jesus. Every other time they got it wrong. <laughs> so, want to be reassured that just because we thought about it or just because maybe we accidentally did it once and then we were corrected that we're okay. Jeremy, first of all, you can't do it accidentally. Blasphemy is intentional. I don't think that's a worry. It's not a concern for us. This is the point where I disagree with you. We have at least, in, I believe, three places, if not more, in just the Gospel of Matthew. These guys are walking around in an intentional smear campaign, not just any smear campaign, but specifically calling him Satan. And I believe that Jesus reveals. His conversation with them shortly before this reveals that he thinks, he knows, that they know better than that. That's what I think it comes out to. So I disagree with the point that these guys are always, they got it right, wrong. I think what's really going on is he is referring to this. And Matthew wants to point this out because remember, he's one of the band of disciples that's walking around getting called Beelzebub as well. All right. Yeah, Randy and then Ben, that's it. Don't you think they recognize the signs and wonders of God and they saw that they were from God by then all the miracles he's done in everything? And I think that is possible, by the way, Jeremy, because I mean, he would say, like, if the miracles had, that had been done had been done in, like, Sodom and Gomorrah and those places, they would have repented. So I think Jesus is a little exacerbated sometimes going like, <laughs> you know, like it couldn't be any clearer to some of you people. That's just my thought. Ben, last comment. The miracles being performed are stuff that, and maybe kind of back it up with things from Old Testament prophets. This is the stuff that's prophesied. This is what God has told his people that he is about. This is what he says he does. And these things are happening. So when you see what God said he will do happening and attributing it to Satan, that's the ultimate saying, you are not God even though I know you're That's... I think that's the difference. That's, it's the spirit versus Jesus right there. That's interesting, except that we started this text off with a prophetic text, right? But that probably wasn't even talking about Jesus. I mean, that's part of the problem, too, is you have a prophecy which might not yes. That you think was the title. Okay, we'll come back to that, but apparently Matthew, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus thought it talked about him. But, but, but other than that, we'll, we'll hear your views at dinner tonight about why the prophecy doesn't apply. Like, just don't attribute the prophecy to Satan and you'll be okay, all right? <laughs> all right. Let me, let me close this way. Come back together for just two minutes. In our debate about this, which I believe, by the way, again, it is not something you're going to accidentally do that you should be worried about. We should limit it to this, and we should first not use this liberally where we're walking around calling what people do in the church influenced by Satan. That's very dangerous. I don't think anybody in this room would do that, but just as a caution. But lest we just put aside this whole thing of blaspheming the Holy Spirit and have a big theological debate and fun tonight without missing these words. Look very carefully at this last part, though, about... I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. You know, I think that we could skip right over that and not get the personal application that applies to us most. I don't think we're going to have a problem with blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What I think we are going to have a problem with is making account to Christ for what we say. 
You know, Jesus is making a point here, of course, connected to how he knows the Pharisees have evil hearts because the words that come out of their mouth are evil. But that truth applies to us as well, that the words that come out of our mouth indicate our heart. And I say this in a spirit of confession because I say words in here as we speak together and have fun that are edifying and good, but I also know that out of my mouth comes out words that are also sometimes cutting, that are coarse, and they reveal the nature of my heart. As I read this this week, I really focused on these words for me, and I want you to focus on them for you. How is it that good heart and bad heart live side by side in us? How is it that that good edifying part of us and yet the evil part of us continues to coexist? They shouldn't. So I want to challenge you tonight not to lose sight of those words that are directly applicable to us because they were convicting to me and they should be convicting to all of us. That while we can sit here and do these edifying things like studying the word and praising the Lord and the words that come out of our mouth when we pray for somebody or when we love somebody or we care for somebody are good, then I know that side by side with those things come out the other words that are coarse and joking and difficult and tough and cutting and critiquing. And those mean, if you read this passage and read what Jesus is saying, that that is the condition of my heart. So my challenge to you, as it is to me, is to focus on the words that come out of our mouth for the next week or so and listen to them and say, do I need to work on my heart? Let's pray and close up. Lord God, I thank you for the vibrancy that we have when we encounter your word, especially in this room. Thank you, Lord, for the gift that you've given us in opening up your scriptures to the entire group, opening up the words that are sometimes that we skim right over, sometimes the words that we ignore. Maybe we've read these words our whole lives, Lord, and just kind of wondered what they meant and moved on. Maybe tonight we're still struggling with your words. And Lord, I praise you for that because your words are constantly a source of struggle for us. Just the things that we put up on the screen tonight in our introduction, Lord, all those questions, we are going to read this book again and again, and we are going to be constantly surprised and still struggling to understand the great wisdom that you contain in the words that you speak and the words that you give to us. Thank you, Jesus, that we have such a great God. We're going to serve you our whole lives. We're going to be reading these scriptures our whole lives, and we will still have so many questions when we encounter the infinite God, the God is beyond all our knowing and understanding. But Lord, your Holy Spirit reveals things to us and we ask specifically tonight that your Holy Spirit reveal to us and give us a peace in our hearts over what these scriptures mean, especially this issue of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And this week that you would convict us, Lord, to examine the condition of our heart as we listen to our own words and listen to the things that come out of our mouth. Jesus, we will make account to you someday and I pray that we would from this moment forward keep that in mind. Pray this in your name. Amen.